Hi, hi, this is the Travelling Symphony Movie Club. My name is John. And I'm Katie. Hello, everybody. And this is our companion podcast for Dunkirk, which we watched as part of our film club community last week. We're really excited. I mean, we're, we're always really excited now with our podcast because we keep getting such amazing guests. But um, this week was exceptional as well. We had the chance to speak to a historian, Peter Caddick Adams, about Dunkirk in history and reality, but also the much wider context of how it fits in with the events of World War II. It was such a, a fantastic conversation, wasn't it? Yeah, it was just brilliant. And it actually did everything we wanted it to do because we ourselves and everyone else in the film group came away thinking, wow, what a fantastic film Dunkirk is. But like anything, you always have those other questions. And I you know, couldn't quite remember from my history lessons where Dunkirk actually fitted in to everything in the war. And I'm sure there's lots of people who are the same. And I feel like this conversation has everything for everyone, whether you are a sort of history novice or whether you actually have quite a lot of knowledge on the on the subject, he covers everything brilliantly. So we will hear from Peter now. We start off by talking a little bit about some of the minor inaccuracies in the film from the 2017 film. He also does mention the 1958 film at a later point in our conversation. But after we talk about the film, uh, we quite quickly move on to the deeper historical context and really get into the meat of it. But he started off by explaining why the 2017 film is so important. It's created a lot of controversy because, um, you know, there are inaccuracies in it. But the main point about Dunkirk is it has brought that hugely important episode of British military history in the Second World War to the attention of a, a whole new generation. But really importantly for, for the American market, because this is a absolutely off their radar. The Second World War starts in December 1941 with Pearl Harbor. Uh, what had happened in Europe just wasn't relevant. But this is so relevant to the uh, American landings on their D-Day beaches. So it, it's, it, it is an important part of their Second World War as well, if they but knew it. When it was filmed, I came across the set. I walked onto the Dunkirk beaches. And so what struck me first was, was that, you know, the depth of research that Christopher Nolan had done, down to the extent of trying to get the beach right trying to get the right ships anchored in the background, trying to um, arrange the set, particularly of the harbour um, in the, the west and the smoke clouds that were absolutely right, coming from the right place, sweeping over the beach. The number of extras, several thousand young Frenchmen all dressed as, as, as Brits huddling together to queue up for their cafeteria for their tea and everything. And you just, they, they were all young. Their faces looked like those of 1940. So the, the effort he'd made into trying to get uh, everything right was hugely impressive in a way that, you know, most directors just don't bother. And, and his obsession with not leaning heavily on CGI, because so many people do, uh, and that gave it strengths and weaknesses. The weakness was actually that was a movie where you could have done CGI. There weren't enough soldiers on the beach. At any one time, there were sort of fifty to 100,000 people on the beach queuing up, uh, and you don't see that. There were more ships off um, the beaches than at any one time the camera angle gives us. But I think the fact that you, you go down onto the Dunkirk beaches and you realise that's where he's filming just gives it a sort of sense of authenticity. But I've walked those beaches several times. Now, we are in 2020, and at the beginning of this year, a friend of mine who lives locally 
sent me a picture of a German helmet, a pair of boots, a British mess tin, and a box of German stick grenades that had the, the channel storms had uncovered from the sand dunes on the Dunkirk beaches. These things are still there, mementos of, of, of that battle. So if you're actually you know, you're filming it in a place where all of this happened, it just adds something extra to the vitality of all of that. We can pick up faults. Um, we can observe that the uh, ammunition supply of a Spitfire never seems to end. Now, a friend of mine has, has timed the number of seconds that the key pilot has his finger on the trigger button in the Spitfire cockpit, and I think it's 27 seconds all the way through the film. You fire a, a Spitfire continuously for more than about seven seconds and you're out of ammunition. You have much, much less ammunition than the film implies the glide at the end the spitfire runs out of fuel and goes on gliding and gliding and gliding i mean it once you're out of fuel you you're down this isn't the sort of british glider association hovering and circling over france so there's a bit of that and we understand why you know he's, he's got to glide right to the edge of the beach out of the shot and then you know he, he, he gets captured. You know, the German Messerschmitts have yellow noses. Well, they, they, they painted them with yellow noses after Dunkirk as a recognition aid because they had suffered, the German Air Force suffered friendly fire casualties at Dunkirk. They were shooting each other down. So to stop that happening, all the, all of, uh, the German Messerschmitts were given yellow noses. And that's what you see in the Battle of Britain. But he's brought that forward to, to Dunkirk simply as a recognition aid for the audience, because we don't know. You know, your average person looking will not know what a, a Messerschmitt or a Spitfire is, what the essential difference. The purist will say, well, it's wrong, the, the timing's wrong. And, and you know, th the other side of me says, well, if we're in the business of communicating history to people who don't worry about the details, then I sort of don't mind. Um, so can you explain then a little bit about how this unwanted campaign got underway, how it came to being that this evacuation became necessary? Well, if we give Dunkirk some context, Germany invades Poland on the 1st of September 1939. Britain and France declare war on Germany, really as a deterrent to try and persuade the Germans that this is an awfully bad idea and they should think twice about it. Of course, that's not going to happen. So we end up defending Poland in, in no way at all. We're at war with Germany, but we can't protect or save Poland in any way at all. And she's dismembered, as we know, by the Germans and indeed the Russians. There's then a phony war. We can't do anything really to, to intervene uh, in, in the war against Germany. We, we're not going to put um, a continental force uh, into Europe to invade Germany, certainly. Um, we pour most of Britain's field army into France. This is called the British Expeditionary Force as it had been in the First World War. They go there clutching the same Lee Enfield rifles and, and soup bowl Tommy helmets that they had worn in 1914-1918. Pretty much every senior officer, Lieutenant Colonel and above, had been there in 1914-1918. You get some officers in the same billet. They even remember the same landlady. History literally comes full circle. Um, when the British have to do a counterattack against the Germans at Arras in May 1940, this is just before Dunkirk begins, the commanding officer can't think of anywhere else to hold his orders group than in his old dugout on top of a hill where he'd last been in 1917. I mean, that's how the circle comes all the way around. That's how much we need to realise that there's a, 
the so-called shadow of the Somme is there big time for everybody who's fought. And we completely forget about that. That's not there in the, the 2017 movie. But um, for a whole generation, this is Britain going back to where they had only just left. This is a generation earlier, 21 years earlier. Is there a lot um, discussed about the traumas of that and the, the traumas of having to go back to the scenes of such horrific uh, previous experiences? There's a long period from the end of September 1939 to the 10th of May 1940, which we call the phony war now, um, where nothing's happened. Everybody's waiting for something to happen. Uh, the troops dig in. They do a lot of training. They do a lot of trench. They dig a lot of trenches because they think that's how the war is going to be all over again. It's going to be a rerun of the First World War. And they have to keep their people occupied. So they do battlefield tours. The senior men who'd been there in the First World War take the same battalion sometimes. They take their people over bits of battlefield where they're camped uh, and just show them what it, what real war was like. And uh, there are lots of diary accounts of these people stumbling over the ground, writing home to saying, you know, picking up old bayonets and bits of weapon and helmets just really brings home to you what this war is all about. And they haven't even started it. You know, this is just the, the, the relics of an earlier war. So I think everybody's sort of slightly nervous because there's the evidence of what a big, long war is. And the perception is that although the Germans are very powerful with Blitzkrieg, that the French and the British will be more modern, will be able to stand up to the Germans. And what we will get when the Germans eventually arrive, and this is a, a when, not an if, is there will be a second version of the First World War with trench lines uh, and the Germans will be blocked and their tanks will be opposed by Allied tanks. And actually, if you look at the figures, the astonishing thing is the Allies have more aircraft and more tanks than the Germans do. Uh, and the May 1940 campaign is all about how you use these assets, not about the numbers. So if we come on to the battle itself, the invasion of France in 1940, the Germans arrive with complete surprise on May the 10th. The French have poured most of their money into building a defensive line uh, along their sort of eastern frontier called the Maginot Line. Uh, the Germans find a way of outflanking that, partly by going through the Ardennes forests, crossing over the, the other barrier, which is the River Meuse, very, very quickly, where the French are weakest, uh, and striking out into to France. So this is their exploitation of tactics, which we later call Blitzkrieg. But I think the real decider is the fact that the German Air Force can concentrate in huge numbers to protect their ground forces. Uh, and they have great radio communications between the ground forces and, uh, and those in the air. Uh, and the Allies don't really have that. So we have lots of planes. They're spread out because we don't know where the Germans are going to arrive. But we can't talk direct to the aircraft from the ground. Uh, and you have to go through all sorts of layers of requesting an aircraft to come over and have a look at what's going on or conduct a bombing raid or, or attack. Uh, and that flashed a bang from the time you you, you want, you see trouble and you want uh, help in the air. can be hours and hours, if not days and days. Uh, and the Germans are working on minutes. So their steamroller of tanks are, are able to move through France very, very quickly with this protective cover of, of aircraft, rather like a sort of, um, a, a cloud of hornets protecting the tanks as they move underneath. Uh, and this is partly about perception. The French are very uh, misplaced uh, mentally about this attack that suddenly seems to develop enormous force uh, and coming from an angle they hadn't expected. They are very slow at putting together counterattacks. 
And actually, the political morale of the French is very, very low. This is a war they don't really want to indulge in uh, again, because the First World War cost them uh, not only double the number of dead that we did, well over two million, but a huge number of, of mutilated soldiers who you saw on every street corner. So the evidence of a long protracted war was there staring you in the face all the time. And the French birth rate never recovered. Huge numbers of women who just couldn't marry because there weren't enough men around. Um, and so the political perception of fighting a long war was, was horrific in the minds of many politicians who'd never themselves fought. So they exaggerated what this would all be like. There is a crisis of morale amongst a lot of Frenchmen who are being conscripted, some for the second time in their lives. Their fighting ability is, is amongst the conscripts, is perhaps not, not what it should be. We give an awful lot of credit to the German advance being fantastic, these large numbers of tanks. What we have to remember is the German war machine is a bit like a lance, steel-tipped, and the steel tip of the lance are the German Panzer units, their tank units, and they only have very, very few. Uh, and the, the wooden shaft of the lance, if we're using that metaphor, are, are all the infantry units who are horse-drawn. So about 10% of the German army, maybe even less than that, relies on wheels and tracks. That's the bit that breaks through. Behind them come all these horses. The German army in 1940 is, is very like the German army of 1914. All their artillery is towed. But that doesn't matter if the French have got the wind up and they're just fleeing and, and running or not able to counterattack very effectively. And, and it's, it's the German air force that really just reinforce this and drive this. So the Germans aren't that powerful in, in themselves. It's their tactics uh, that make them more powerful. And similarly, it's the French lack of morale that, that degrades them. And the Brits are really on the sidelines. British tactics for hundreds of years, still now, are to let others do the main fighting on the ground. Uh, and we will intervene once the result has been decided or we, we've got other people to do the fighting for us. Uh, and we can intervene at sea uh, and in the air. But, but large land armies are expensive, costly in manpower and very expensive to run. And we tend not to do them. And that, that's, the, that's the truth in 1940. The British Expeditionary Force, by the time it, it, it has arrived, coalesced, reinforced, is nearly half a million men. But alongside a French mobilized conscript army of over three million that's tiny but what we have to remember is the british take with them every single mechanized vehicle we take uh, over fifty thousand vehicles trucks cars um uh, tanks motorcycles but not a single horse the british army in 1940 is the most mechanized in the world so the amazing thing is the aftermath when we look at dunkirk how do we end up on the back foot? And the answer is, in our minds, we are far more powerful than the Germans with the French and the Belgians, who are our allies. But Belgium will not fight the Germans until Belgian soil is violated. And that only happens on the 10th of May. So until the 10th of May, the Brits and French can rehearse a German invasion. The Belgians won't. And if you set foot on Belgian territory, you'll be arrested. Because they don't want to do anything to provoke the Germans. The Germans invade on the 10th of May, 1940. Um, the French are not expecting it, are wrong-footed, uh, and the Germans really rather get round behind most of the French forces. And within three weeks, they've arrived at the Channel Coast, and they have cut off the French armies and the, the British armies, who are mostly concentrated in northeast France. And the Germans, you have to remember, have done in three weeks 
what they spent all of 1914 to 1918 trying to do and failed to do. Dunkirk is really all about the British suddenly deciding the fight in northeast France cannot be fought and won unless the British retreat back to the coast along their line of communications and are picked up by the Navy and got back to Britain, they will be surrounded by the Germans and all captured. So we take a very difficult decision in the early days of the, around about the 21st, 22nd of May, to withdraw back to the coast and stop fighting the Germans, but to save ourselves. And that is at the expense of supporting our French allies. And they know that, they get quite shirty. But the idea is to go back to England, return back to France, and carry on the fight. So whilst Dunkirk is going on, we're still feeding troops into Western France to have another go. Our perception of Dunkirk is that's the end, that's the end of the British fighting in France, it's all over. In Churchill's mind, and the weirdest thing is he's become prime minister on the same day the Germans invade. That's just the way the cards fall. Chamberlain has decided to throw in the towel. And after he's made that decision, the Germans um, invade. They're not connected in any way at all. So it's actually Churchill in the driving seat from the 10th of May. So when we're in the midst of the Dunkirk evacuation, say the 31st of May, Churchill has been in office as prime minister for 21 days, exactly three weeks. You look at modern political leaders and you wonder about their their tough ride. <laughs> there is nothing tougher than taking over as prime minister, age 65 as he was. And within three weeks, your major land force is about to be surrounded, defeated and all captured. Uh, and that could then pr- be a prelude to the invasion of your own land. And that, within your first three weeks of office, that's the magnitude of what Winston Churchill achieves. It must have been an organisational, logistical nightmare to try to get this all planned and executed of the the ships going across the channel and the commissioning of the smaller ships and the the civilian ships to to get it over. How did that sort of manifest itself? So what we have is um, a very good logistical operation to get the British to France. Uh, And this is not dissimilar to how we would do it today. This is most of the the field army and a huge logistical backup going to to northern France using the the channel ports. So once you run into trouble, what you're trying to do is protect those ports because that's where everything runs backwards and forwards to. You can't sustain the army in France without this great logistics effort. So if they run into trouble, it makes sense to bring them back the same way. The man who is commanding the, the naval area of Dover is a retired admiral because we bring him out of retirement, a man called Bertram Ramsey. His headquarters is underneath Dover Castle, tunneled into the the chalk cliffs. And he's been watching what's going on in France. He's a First World War veteran himself. And he is warned by the Prime Minister that things are not going well. You need to put some kind of plan in place to bring the army back. He has less than a week to put this into practice with naval warships there's nothing else around really that will get to france very quickly and the idea is to take these ships into the harbors initially of calais and dunkirk and then when calais is captured just dunkirk unload from the uh, the, the sides of the, the the wharfs and the piers directly onto the deck turn around and, and bring people home uh, and the most agile and quickest ships will be 
naval warships, mostly destroyers, who've got their own anti-aircraft guns so they can protect themselves. Uh, and that's what is in his mind to do. But he realizes that actually German air power might be rather challenging. He, we've got to be prepared for a loss uh, of ships. The trade-off, of course, is the Germans may then follow up with an invasion of England. So how much of your navy can you afford to lose if you're going to need it in subsequent months to defeat a German invasion? So is that how they came up with their first original figure of th saving 30,000 troops? Exactly. So Ramsey says, right, given the time we've got, given the naval assets we've got, realistically, worst case, this is what I will come up with. There's a bit of background here, hinterland, we need to know about Admiral Ramsey and Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill on the northwest frontier of India, when he arrives as a very young officer, age 21, um, joins a cavalry regiment on the northwest frontier. And his lieutenant colonel commanding his regiment is a guy called Ramsey, who is Bertram Ramsey's father. Uh, and the young Bertram Ramsey, just a bit younger than Winston Churchill, spends his long vacations with his father in India and gets to know the youngest officer in the regiment, who is Winston Churchill. <laughs> So they go back. <laughs> and in the interwar period, when Winston Churchill is out of government office, he's an MP, but he's preaching in the wilderness about German rearmament. And people are coming in to him with secret details about how much we're spending in the air on, on, on the army and uh, at sea. We now know it's Admiral Ramsey, retired, who is bringing Churchill those secret figures about naval spending. So he and Winston go back ages. And I think part of the success, and this is why I'm such a fan of Bertram Ramsey, he's the great unsung hero, really, is that Churchill doesn't have to spend much time explaining to him what he wants him to do. And trusts him implicitly because they've known each other for 50 years, more than 50 years. And that makes a huge difference. It would have taken seconds for the two to rough out the parameters and any other admiral in post, it would have been so much more difficult. And I think that makes a huge, huge difference. He can give this worst case scenario, Prime Minister, will only bring 30,000 of the people back. There's 500,000 British soldiers in, in France at this time. So you are looking at a complete and total potential disaster. Ramsey gets uh, all the warships he can. And in the first few days at Dunkirk, we lose six destroyers. Okay, Britain has got over 200 modern and old destroyers at the time. But if we give this a context, the, the, the Royal Navy today has six destroyers. That's all. So in Dunkirk terms, we've lost the entire, we've got 20 frigates, but we've lost the entire destroyer fleet. Uh, and they're all modern. And you know that really makes people sit up and take notice. But I mean, let's look, look at Dunkirk in a little bit more detail. So Ramsey's got this idea. He, he's got the freedom to sort of send warships. But that's not going to be enough because he realizes straight away that the harbor, if the harbor is out of commission for any reason, then you have to take men off the beaches. Uh, and if you're then going to anchor destroyers and warships off the beaches, send in little motorboats or rowing boats onto the sands, it will take days to load a single ship, turn it around. How are you going to uh, bridge the gap? And this is where he comes up with the idea of the, the little ships. So there has been a rough peacetime plan. Um, a lot of ships, uh, skippers of small ships, can join something called the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve, which is for, for people who love messing around in small boats or sailing. So quite a few people who 
mess around with boats as a hobby have had some military training with the Navy, and it's quite easy to sort of round them up. But then the call goes out um, for more ships. Um, and this is Ramsey directly thinking that, that actually what we need is a the ability to create a ferry service from the beaches to, to the warships waiting offshore. And the amazing thing is that the sort of speed with which this happens, but it's also Ramsey's foresight in being aware of the, the infrastructure the Royal Navy has, their ability to call up small ships uh, and to say, right, we need this, we need this now, um, we need all these ships, can you get them across the channel as quickly as possible? The Navy can, can work very, very fast bureaucratically at that time. And as there's also the sense of this national emergency, things have gone wrong in France. Clearly, the newspapers can't disguise the fact that the German advance is quicker and more dangerous than anyone had anticipated. So that's how the little ships are right. It isn't a spontaneous thing, as the BBC suggests or the movies suggest. There are the germs of a, a plan in the background. And Ramsey's brilliance is that he's aware of all of this. So he, he's got all the jigsaw puzzle pieces of what becomes Operation Dynamo, the Dunkirk evacuation, on his desk. And he knows how to assemble them. And there's probably no one else in the Admiralty who could have done that job. Another aspect that isn't touched on in the film that we wanted to ask you about was Hitler's halt order and this, this um, notion that the Germans stopped at the point at which they could have completely routed the British forces. Could you explain a little bit about that, the context of it, and perhaps some of the historical debate around that? Yes, yeah, so the German advance goes very, very quickly. One thing we, we often overlook is the fact that the German advance is, is also enabled by very, very good weather. So you get a an advance of nearly three weeks in glorious weather with minimal French opposition. Um, there are two half-hearted French armoured counterattacks and one British one more determined against the Germans in that whole first sort of three-week period that doesn't blunt uh, the German effort at all. And as I say, they're, they're largely enabled by the German Air Force. And this creates huge jealousy uh, in the German high command because they see the, the tank arm getting all the glory. Hermann Goering running the Air Force, his beautiful Air Force, his Luftwaffe, he's created from scratch. The Germans weren't even allowed an Air Force after the First World War. Is not getting the glory, and he's rather angry about that. And he's the senior Nazi at that sort of time. And he's lobbying Hitler to say, we'd really like more of a role in this glorious runaway victory that's happening. But I think there's something deeper going on here as well, which is Hitler is in charge of the Third Reich. But there's an uneasy relationship between him and the German army who really ran Germany before Hitler came to power. And one of the reasons why Hitler has come to power at all is because the army backed him, helped him with training and weapons and all sorts of things in, in the early days of the, of the Third Reich we now know. They think he is their creature. They can con control Adolf Hitler. But Hitler thinks exactly the opposite. This runaway victory that, that is happening in May 1940 crystallizes this uh, relationship, because we now think that Hitler looks at the the victory and thinks, "Bloody hell! If this carries on, I'm never be going to be able to control the army because they will own this wonderful victory that is happening." A combination of the weather changing suddenly gets poor weather. The fact that the field, the German army, are exhausted. You can do blitzkrieg for about two, two and a half weeks 
and then men become exhausted because they've been on the go all the time, almost without sleep. Or well, we now know the Germans have pervitin, which is a drug. It's crystal meth. That's what they're giving their troops at the time. But things like tanks wear out, tracks wear out, wheels uh, wear out, rubber tires wear out. Uh, you can do Blitzkrieg only for about two and a half, three weeks, and it, the whole thing just grinds to a halt. I personally, as a soldier, witnessed the, the 2003 invasion of Iraq, and the American blitzkrieg into southern Iraq, all the way up to Baghdad, took about three weeks, and it, it, they couldn't go much longer because they ran out of steam. They ran out of mental steam, out of you know, men being tired, but machines being tired, and that's what's happening in 1940. So the whole thing is winding down, and the moment the weather changes, the, the army naturally grinds to a halt. But on top of that is Hitler's anxiety that this this victory will rob him of political power and transfer it back to the army. And Goering is saying, I want more of the action. And this all crystallizes in, in a halt order that Hitler issues, which is stop, right, the army must stop just short of Dunkirk. Uh, and this is where the Air Force will take over and bomb the British into submission. And that's our traditional interpretation of what the halt order actually meant. But behind it is this Hitler trying to reassert power over the army, almost because he can. Because it, it makes no logical military sense when you're about to crush your opponent and they're there in front of you and you've got all the dice rolling in your favour to suddenly say, stop, but that's what he does. So there has to be a psychological dimension. And of course, that's, that works to Britain's advantage. So the, the German Air Force hadn't cottoned on to the fact that the RAF will be much closer to England. They'll be able to have continuous fighter cover. The, uh, the RAF can concentrate. They know where the battle will be. For the, first, the previous three weeks, the, uh, the Allied air forces, French and British, have been dissipated all over France, fighting lots of little battles. Now there's only one game in town, and that's over the Dunkirk beaches, so that's where the RAF can be uh, and know where they, they all have to go. If your aim is to bomb the troops uh, and sink the ships, you have two problems if you're part of the German Luftwaffe. One is that the troops are on the beaches, and if you start dropping bombs onto sand, the sand muffles the explosions, uh, and so the most powerful effect of your munitions will be dissipated. Um, the second is bombing the ships offshore. Now, if you're trying to bomb a warship uh, and you're cruising around, at, say, three to 5,000 feet and then diving down, because that's the only way you can get accuracy in 1940 with a dive bomber, um, if you're coming down onto a ship, the best way to visualize attacking a warship um, is to, to look down and any kind of ship uh, in the English Channel would look like a pencil. And that pencil is twisting and turning to avoid being sunk. It's shooting back at you. And you've got to come down for agonizing seconds all the time while you're being shot at and try and bomb this pencil, which is wobbling in the waves and will twist and steer out of the way at the last minute, which you've got to anticipate. And that's the problem the Luftwaffe have. It's amazing they sink as many as they do. In the film, there is a scene where they show one of the dive bombers, I think it was trying to get one of the civilian ships, and they say in it, oh, you can tell when his nose dips, that's when he's about to shoot. Is that kind of a reference to what you were talking about, that it was really hard for the planes and they kind of had a tell of when they were going to shoot? Bombing shipping is incredibly difficult. When you dive from a height from a diving board and you dive down and you enter the water, it really hurts, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's the effect of a bomb landing on the surface of the ocean. 
the surface of the ocean is a really hard thing. And if your munitions hit it wrongly, then the bombs will bounce. They won't penetrate. The whole science of bombing shipping is really, really different. And the German Luftwaffe haven't been trained to attack shipping. They've been trained to attack stuff on land and support their own army. So to send them offshore and say, right, go and bomb those ships, you need different aircraft, you need different munitions, and you need special crews who are trained to do that. And the Germans aren't. So you you drop a bomb on a ship, it's quite a lucky hit if you get it. Uh, what you often get is the bombs just sort of bounce um, uh, and, and miss. You can skip bombs uh, uh, across the sea. Um, it, it, you can actually do that. So uh, in the movie, they talk about... Uh, uh, the Germans heading right down. That's the only way you can get accuracy is to be as close to the ship as possible and then pull up. But that, that's when you're most vulnerable as an attacking aircraft because you are yards away from the, the ship you're attacking. And if there are any machine guns uh, and weapons on board, then that's, that's when they're going to rake you with fire. Um, so that's the trade-off then. Without that sort of prior knowledge, in my mind, I was thinking, wow, all of these small civilian ships, loads of them must be bombed it must have been carnage but actually perhaps not they were and especially because they were so small they were probably hard to hit there are quite a number of small ships that are are sunk but in 1990 i went across the channel on a dunkirk little ship uh, and i was there on the quayside for a great big reunion of dunkirk veterans and these wonderful ships and i get terribly emotionally charged and take carried away by the whole notion of the little ships coming to to rescue the British Expeditionary Force and the fact that those ships still sail now. But the first thing that was apparent to me is, you know, they are cabin cruisers designed for the River Thames, not the English Channel. Uh, and even on a mill pond, which very fortunately for us, the, the weather conditions in late May 1940 were brilliant, as calm as anything. The tiniest, choppiest sea was breaking over the decks of these very small ships. They're not designed to, to, to go to sea. And I was talking with the uh, uh, the people who, who owned the ship. And then when we got to Dunkirk, we all moored up and I talked to the other sort of mariners and seafarers. And they said, well, quite a few of these ships ended up at the bottom of the channel, not because they were attacked by the Germans or they were overloaded. A destroyer would sail past fast and the wake would be enough to wash over the ships and sink. That's how fragile they are. It makes it all the more miraculous that many got across the, the channel and got back. The losses are not so much the Germans doing things. This is just accidents of weather, um, not even friendly fire. This is the, the channel doing what it does, even when it's very calm, to ships that are not designed to, to sail in the channel. But our perception from both Dunkirk movies, the, the 1958 one is partly the story of uh, a little ship going across the channel and, and rescuing the small group of soldiers and to a certain extent the 2017 movie is the same it's three strands one is air one is land and one is sea but both movies wrongly understand the role of the little ships Ramsey's idea is to get them out there and they act as ferries from the beach to, to the waiting warships whereas our general perception, and this comes from both of the movies and a lot of books, I have to say, is that they go there and they then take everybody all the way back across the channel. That's incredibly inefficient. Uh, they're, they're not designed to do that. Um, they don't have the fuel to endlessly go backwards and forwards. But what they do is they, they act as the, the ferry service because the Germans realise very early on in, in, in the evacuation that we're using the harbour and they bomb it. 
they score all these sort of own goals. One thing the Germans do very initial, very early on is they bomb the oil tanks at Dunkirk. So fine, we can't use them. But those tanks burn for the rest of the evacuation and they create a natural smokescreen. So we actually have cover. You see all the pictures you see of the Dunkirk uh, evacuation and the very few feet of, of, uh, of moving uh, images. Um, you all see the black clouds in the background. It acts as a magnet for aircraft, but it also protects us during the, the, the daylight hours. But the fact of the matter is the Germans bomb the harbour. We find it very difficult to use. And so we then shift operations to uh, the beaches. And that's, that's where Ramsey's foresight comes in. So the little ships for the first few days are taking people from the beaches and they, the troops all sort of walk down the beach into the sea. Uh, up to their necks. Then someone has the idea of building piers out of um, all the vehicles. We've got whatever it is, um, 50, 60,000 trucks and, and, and so on. So a lot of those are driven onto the beaches, lined up um, side by side to create piers into the ocean because the tidal spread will cover the, um, the vehicles. So those troops you see on photographs standing in long lines are actually standing on duck boards fixed the top of all these vehicles. And that doesn't go very well to begin with until a royal engineer realises that the tyres are floating. So they then puncture all the tyres. So this is an iterative process. And we have three of these great big vehicle piers that are eventually built and are very successful. And that means the little ships don't have to wallow around in the, the shallows. They can go up to the edge of the vehicle piers and the soldiers shuffle along those. The whole thing becomes extremely professional uh, around about the sort of 30th, uh, 31st of May. And then we realise there's part of the old mole uh, at Dunkirk uh, and the easternmost arm of it is actually usable. So ships can come alongside that. So the weight goes back towards the harbour. And by the end, we're taking equal numbers off the beach and the harbour. So this is a, 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 an operation, the evacuation, that grows and, and we adjust each day to um, learning the mistakes and the, the, the strengths from the previous day's operation, getting the vehicle piers better, um, uh, making some repairs to the harbour. So the whole thing is running incredibly smoothly by early June. And of course, it, it, it only has a life of a week. It shut, it shut down by the 4th of June. What was the, the sort of conditions like for the soldiers who were waiting on the beaches for that that week, it, it must have been quite challenging for them. One of the first books I ever wrote was a military history, and part of it was revolving around the Dunkirk beaches. So in the mid-1980s, I interviewed a lot of soldiers who'd been on the beaches. And the first point they were all made was they were not aware of anything being wrong uh, with the campaign in France until they arrived at Dunkirk. But they all said, you know, their impression was quite orderly. And, and this is, you know, this is a big problem. What was it actually like? And we've got three different ideas. So the 1958 uh, movie with John Mills as the sort of redoubtable young corporal leading his section back to the Dunkirk beaches. There's lots of tensions in, in commanding people, but the army administration runs things very well. 2017 movie, it, it, it's far more loose. Um, and there is one of the soldiers who turns out to be French, so you've got all sorts of tensions there within the alliance. There is another, of course, which is the movie Atonement, and, and the key highlight uh, scene that everybody remembers in Atonement it is of a 
long over five minute pan which is done in a single take of the Dunkirk beaches when the hero arrives. And there you see British soldiers who are drunk, completely disorderly. There's, there's no sense of discipline at all. Everything is broken down. And I think the, the truth of the matter is it's a blend of all three. There are some people who just have no idea what's going on, think it, this, is all, this is the way military operations work. There is a sense of orderliness and discipline, and I've certainly seen photographic evidence of soldiers lining up by number, and there's no sense of a, a lack of discipline at all. And then th there's certainly a hint that, that people just throw discipline and hierarchy out the window, uh, and so it, it, it's a free-for-all. But it's a blend of that. You could walk from one yard of the beach to the next and find a different sort of setup. And I think that revolves around people, personalities, with different regiments, uh, regular army, guards, who are very staid and disciplined and have coped with this before. You've got um, territorial uh, units from the north of England who are hardy miners and won't take any lip from an officer and will just do their own thing. And I think just to impose one image on what this was all like is wrong. So much of it revolves around the resilience of individuals. I remember interviewing one guy and he said, well, he got, he get, get, got into the water, he got on a rowing boat, this took him onto a uh, destroyer and that was fine. Uh, and just as they turned to go back to England, his destroyer, HMS Grenade, was hit by an aerial bomb and exploded just like a grenade, and he was back in the sea. And he got washed back to land, and then he got on another ship, uh, a paddle steamer called the Crested Eagle, and that was bombed. So he ended up on the beach for the second time. And eventually, three days later, he got on his third ship, and that brought him back to England. But you've got that sort of knockback. So it takes a lot of guts to carry. You could just give up. And some people undoubtedly did. Uh, and you've got problems of fresh water, lack of fresh water, lack of food, all sorts of things like that going on. So this is a time where you can't rely on the system. It, it's every man for himself within the hierarchy of sort of bigger military discipline. The 2017 movie brings that out quite well. It, it's so much about the contribution of individuals and that's why you've got strong actors who lead there's three stories air sea and land and each is led by a very strong actor and th that actually reflects what's going on at the time what you just said really does resonate with me in the film that sort of killian murphy's role of he was the one who was really suffering with PTSD and didn't want to have to go back and this notion yeah, exactly. of having to do something again and again. And then there were also visuals of some men just walking out into the sea because they were just giving up and they thought, you know, can't handle it. That's based on a real memory that several people had and whether it's all of the same person or whether it's different people, but several people remember uh, a soldier just walking into the sea. One minute he's there, he's walking up to his neck, and then the next minute he disappears and they never see him again. Uh, and that could have happened over and over again, or it could have been a single individual. But that comes from several different eyewitnesses. So there's a lot of truth in this. Um, I mean, it's interesting that Christopher Nolan and, and uh, Josh Levine choose to use uh, fictional names, but they're all based on real people. Um, and there's so many bits of eyewitness accounts that have been seeded into the screenplay. One thing that we did want to particularly ask about was what happened to the soldiers who returned to England and what was their future role in the rest of the war? Because, of course, it went on for five years after this. Um, was there a lot of people who just had to go straight back into 
active duty? Okay, so that's a very good question. What happens to the soldiers who come back from Dunkirk? Well, first point, we've got to remember the plan in Churchill's mind is to bring everyone back from Dunkirk and then send them to France again to carry on the battle. Um, because the Germans um, have come up against the line of the River Somme, so we will uh, feed people back in, and we are feeding people back into France all the way through the Dunkirk evacuation. They're coming into uh, Le Havre and to Cherbourg. And the idea is to bolster up what's left of the French army with a new British army in Western France uh, and then uh, protect, build a new front line pretty much along the line of the River Somme uh, and then counterattack the Germans in the fullness of time. Well, that doesn't work. Um, the Germans are over the Somme in, in the blink of an eye, and we do another Dunkirk, everybody forget, forgets about this, in June from the Atlantic seaboard ports of Saint-Nazaire, with very high loss of life, actually. So there's a second Dunkirk that, that the history books tend to overlook. The soldiers initially are, are brought back unaware that Churchill has in mind for them to go back across the channel in a few days' time. But they're brought back. Uh, most of them don't have any kit. Most of them don't have any weapons. All the crew serve weapons, and I mean artillery pieces, have been left in France. We don't bring a single vehicle back. So they come back. They're aware that they've got back by the skin of their teeth, and they come back tail between their legs and expect to be mobbed, spat at, hounded, and feel ashamed, uh, and hounded by their own public. And they're greeted as heroes because right from the word go, the media are on side, are also taken aside and told what was going on and that, you know, you've got to raise public morale. Um, so this is the media use the, the phrase, the, the miracle of Dunkirk right from the word go. And this is what the public believe right from right from the beginning of the evacuation. So there's enormous goodwill. So soldiers are really surprised. They come back. People are cheering at every railway station. Volunteers turn out with uh, cups of tea and sandwiches. So they're greeted uh, as sort of returning heroes. And they are returning heroes. Um, they just haven't got a victory to return with. This takes them by surprise. And it underlines the point, I think, that the nation has come together, uh, has understood just a fraction of how difficult it is. The battlefront, which has been across the water in another country, and the home front have come together as one. And we've never had that in the way that we did in the Second World War. There's a bit of that in the First World War. And then that will be solidified by the German Blitz and everything else on, on English cities. And all of a sudden, you're not fighting a war that's distant. It's here on your own shores. And then those soldiers then have to be turned into a fighting force to repel the Germans, who are quite clearly about to invade. Now, what we don't know is that the German army have no amphibious capability, have had huge losses uh, of men and material in the invasion of France. The German air force is on its last legs because they've taken huge losses of aircraft and pilots uh, and the whole system is exhausted. So they can't possibly do an invasion. But we don't know that. So the guys come back, then they have a role to really focus on. So they can't dwell on what's just happened at Dunkirk. Because the Germans are going to come. They're, they're going to be over here. They're going to be invading the White Cliffs of Dover in no time at all. So they haven't got time to dwell on what's just happened. It's retraining, getting new equipment, digging trenches, uh, building pillboxes to make sure the what's just happened in France doesn't happen in the United Kingdom. Um, and that's really good therapy because they haven't got time to sort of dwell on this. You mentioned before about how Churchill had just been in power for three weeks when this happened. It was 
you know, by all accounts, a sort of unmitigated disaster to have to do such a large scale retreat. How did that look politically? You know, and and I suppose how is this viewed from the other countries and Germans and overall? What was the the view of it? It's incredible, really, because the speed with which this happens. When Churchill takes over uh, as prime minister in the afternoon of the 10th of May, there's a lot of ambiguity in the minds of the, the nation and particularly British politicians as to who would, was going to be prime minister. It turns out to be Churchill. The other man is uh, in the running uh, is Edward Halifax, Lord Halifax, who's the foreign secretary. Uh, and Halifax's view before May, May 1940 is to accommodate the Germans. He's been on Chamberlain's side as an, uh, as an appeaser. And he's Chamberlain's natural successor in Chamberlain's eyes and in his own, and a great friend of the king. So he is anointed by the establishment to be the prime minister. Halifax has two problems. One is he doesn't have the mental resilience that Churchill does, and he knows it. But he's been on the side of the appeasers, and he realises that may be held against him. But even more importantly, he's a peer. He's a member of the House of Lords. British politics has led from the House of Commons. He cannot even step into the House of Commons as a member of the House of Lords. You know, those traditions really matter. And he couldn't lead the country from the House of Lords. And for all of those reasons, despite Chamberlain's urging, it's Churchill who sits in power um, at the end of the 10th of May. But all the Chamberlainites, who is still the majority of the Conservative Party, are hostile to Churchill, and Churchill still has to win them over. There are other complications. The American ambassador to England is Joe Kennedy, who is as right-wing and as obnoxious and anti-British. He comes from that old American-Irish family, the Kennedys. His son will be JFK and all the other Kennedys. But Joe is an old Irish, anti-English, anti-monarchist, really obnoxious, unpleasant person who's advising Roosevelt all the time not to back the Brits because they're going to be defeated, the Germans are going to invade, actually the Germans are nice guys, we should do deals with them. So there's that. Churchill realises, you know, Britain's role is to hang on in 1940 and just survive. We cannot win the Second World War without the Americans, but we have to prove to them that we are worth backing. That's his job in 1940. He gets that absolutely straight away. He has that that world vision of, of geopolitics that almost no one else in the United Kingdom understands. So, you know, the cards on the 10th of May are stacked against him. The majority of his own party don't like him. His principal ally, the Americans, they're being fed poison by their own ambassador in London. So he has to rally the country, which he does with his, his wonderful oratory. But his position is very sticky on the 10th of May. And so he gives us these three wonderful, stirring speeches um, in the summer of, of, of 1940, mostly June. We'll fight them on the beaches. And uh, later on, uh, tribute to the RAF fighting the Battle of Britain uh, and so on. So there are several, several key speeches. And they are addressed as messages to different people. Some of them are addressed to the British Empire and Commonwealth. Because actually, it's not Britain alone in 1940. It's the whole British Empire, which is all the ships in uh, the personnel, the war making capacity, the raw materials uh, in Canada, in, in Australia, in New Zealand, in India, in Burma, in South Africa. Uh, and, you know, we need it all. But Hitler is not against Britain or England. Hitler is against the British Empire. And providing they all rally to Churchill's leadership, then we're unbeatable. And Churchill knows that. But we don't spin it like that. This is plucky little England on our own. 
but we are simply the tip of a much, much bigger iceberg. Well, Churchill gets that because he understands the world, but most people in Britain don't. And hence this great nervousness of, oh, we're going to get invaded tomorrow and we really are on our own. We're not. So Churchill is very good at pushing that particular agenda, rallying the nations. But if you look at his speeches, part of this is defiance to the Germans. Part of it is rallying the nation. Part of it's rallying the armed forces. And part of it is messaging America, hang on, give us the tools, we will finish the job. Part of it is the empire, just give us everything we need, we're hanging on here. You know, this is what great communication is all about, strategic communication at that national state-to-state level. And that's what you find in Churchill's speeches. The words are wonderful and stirring. That's all he's got in his arsenal in, in May and June 1940, because there's nothing else he can really give the world except this inspiration to, um, to hang on. And his first speech, you know, I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears uh, and sweat, which is he's going cap in hand to the Conservative Party and saying, I know you hate me, but, you know, I'm the boss now, but I can't, I can't promise you anything. But he's very clever because this is, you know, underselling and over-delivering. He knows we'll do much better than that. So if he goes almost on his knees to Parliament and to the nation, then everything is going to be better than the worst-case scenario he's giving us in that speech. If you imagine building, you know, the triumph of D-Day, and D-Day is very important, the invasion of France, because so many of the soldiers who've returned in from Dunkirk in June 1940, will arrive in northern France on the beaches of Normandy in June 1944. It's exactly four years later. And, and, you know, the man who gets us, gets that whole situation turned around from Dunkirk to D-Day is Winston Churchill. How does this fit in to the the context of the war and what's the impact of Dunkirk's evacuation on the war going forwards? The impact of Dunkirk is is huge. For the nation, it's really important to understand that, that we have the ability, the sophistication to bring everybody back. So we have an army w- which can defend the United Kingdom. We have nearly all our, our people. So that's that's point one. If we hadn't have brought them back, we wouldn't have had an army with which to defend the nation. That doesn't mean the Germans could have got across the channel. We still have the most powerful navy in the world. We would have sunk everything the Germans would have tried to get across the channel. But the perception is we, we have the army back. So that's that's point one. The nation is re- reassured by that. And that means the, the battle can switch to air, to the space over the, the country, because the air then has to be won by the Germans before they can invade uh, by sea or, or, or on land. So that's the immediate aftermath. Um, Dunkirk is actually a tactical victory for the Germans, but it's a strategic defeat because they haven't defeated or destroyed the army. They've simply vanquished it, and it will come back to fight another day. Now, they go off and do other stupid things like invade Russia. Our story moves on four years to the Normandy invasion of 1944, because Dunkirk has bought us time. The Germans can't get at us, so they attack us from the air. And that time allows us to retrain, re-equip, study the lessons of failure uh, in 1940, and it takes us a long time to work that out. Um, We then end up battling with the Germans in the only place we can on land, which happens to be North Africa, uh, and that's where our best generals grow, if you like, from the bottom up. Montgomery comes to the fore. 
So four years later, we learn how to defeat the Germans on land in battle. We take the best bits of that army. We take the best understanding of those tactics. Uh, we take the maturity of the Allied air forces who've learned how to tangle with the German air force and beat it. We put it all together and we spend about a year rehearsing for one day of battle, which is the invasion of France, how to get across on a hostile shore, how to do Dunkirk the other way. And on Sword Beach, which is the easternmost beach at 7.30 on the 6th of June, 1944, 3rd British Division, who had been commanded in 1940 at Dunkirk by Montgomery, returned to France. Many of the soldiers had last seen action in France at Dunkirk, and the next time they get their feet wet in the English Channel, it's in Normandy. The same soldiers coming back to do the same thing, sometimes against the same Germans. But this time we're stronger, we've got all the odds in our favour, um, and the flow of battle goes completely the other way. So of 155,000 Allied soldiers who land on D-Day, the 6th of June 1944, perhaps 15% had themselves been at Dunkirk four years earlier. So for them, as well as the nation, as well as Churchill, it's a complete reversal of fortune, but none of this would have been possible um, without the amazing success of the Dunkirk evacuations. The two are two sides of the same coin. Fantastic, well, thank you so much to Peter Caddick Adams for speaking to us. He has Lots and lots of books out, uh, so if you want to find any of those, you can head on to Amazon or any other booksellers, or you can follow him on Twitter. We'll put his uh, Twitter handle in our podcast description. Uh, he's a really great follow. He has so much knowledge about all, you know, human history, especially to do with military conflicts. So really, really fascinating guy, and we were so, so happy to speak to him. So this week we are going to be covering Searching for Sugar Man because that's our Friday watch along. So make sure you head over to our Instagram at TS Movie Club so you can see all of our content as we build up to Friday night's live watch. You can also find all of the relevant links that you might need for how to join in. It's all on one link now in our Instagram bio. So don't need to worry about too much anymore. We'll be back in a couple of days with our preview podcast for Searching for Sugar Man. So we will speak to you very, very soon. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.